Bachia, can you hear me? I see you're muted. And why is this recording? Hey, Jenna. I don't know why is it recording. I don't know. Can you turn it off? It's not me. Also, are you going to not put your video on? Yeah. <laughs> I can whilst you're on, though. Okay. Hey. My mom is going to sit in. My sister's also sitting in. Ah, hello there. Hello. So I'm not Hi. the only one who loves to learn? Told ya. Yeah. <laughs> um, Art, do you think everyone's going to have their camera off? I don't know. But I don't, my sister's going to sit in. I don't think she wants to be on camera, so. You sound a little sick. I just have allergies, like mm -hmm. usual. Yeah. How are you doing? Good. It's raining here, like London. <laughs> Gosh. Oh, it's so wet? Yes, I can. The floor looks very wet. <laughs> oh, Hannah. Mama. Don't be scared. It's just me and Jenna. <laughs> Don't be scared. Your best friend isn't on yet. <laughs> oh, and now look who's come to say hello. Oh, Hannah. Hey. So Hi, Hannah. Hey. Jenna. Hey, Dee. Dee. <laughs> Are you in the airport? <laughs> I think your audio is not on, Dee. Hey. Hi. Hi. No, it is. Hey, Bugs. How are ya? Hey. <laughs> what are these numbers? What'd you say? Who's these numbers? Who are these numbers? I don't know who that is, Diana. Oh, Valerie. Diana, I'm leaving the country back it's a good I think, um, I think it's a good decision. I can until Rabbi Kaufman comes. Then oh it's turning God. off. And that's what the plan is. <laughs> you're just a silhouette. Also, like, my windows make my face black. Yeah. yeah you look like you're in a, an anonymous interview. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Oh, there you are. Oh, I hope that his camera's on. Yeah. What'd you say? I hope his camera's on because I don't want to just listen. It's like listening to a audio class. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's going to be interesting. I feel like it's pressure. If everyone else has their video on, then you do. Hello. Wait, Jenna, do your voice that you talk to him in. Hey, Luca. <laughs> what color should I do? Oh, I like the green. The red's kind of creepy. <laughs> Wait, what is that, Anna? I have like strip lights at the top of my room. Oh, cool. Yeah. I don't have to get up to turn on and off the light. <laughs> Guys, I'm so excited. Yeah. So just weird. Look at us, early birds. <laughs> I already told him to punctual because I don't know how he's with technology because of the kosher phone. 
<laughs> he has a computer. <laughs> Probably like a huge PC. <laughs> oh, I miss my strobe lights. Guys, I'm so bad at this whole YouTube. Nora. Oh, look at the bedroom. Hi. Hi. That's awkward. He's still not here. <laughs> minute. I'm so excited for Rabbi Kaufman. Same. Does my background look kosher? Oh, I'm turning my camera off. Same. Should we all? I think it's so weird. I don't want him looking at me. <laughs> he's definitely not gonna. He's next to him every day. <laughs> yeah, he's probably gonna like put a paper in front of the screen so he can't see anything. <laughs> <laughs> hey, what is going on with you? Huh? What is going on with your colors? He's having a little dance party. You're hilarious. Hey, everybody. Hi, Winky. Lee, you're back in class. I know, it's crazy. I'm Lee, we gotta sit next to him. Jenna. Jenna, how are we gonna sit no, across I'm from each other? I'm already thinking about what joke I can make about- I mean, technically you are across from me. Oh, Baruch Hashem. You guys don't- Back to how it's meant to be. It. My mom's here. Hello, Jenna's mom. Hi. Hey, folks. Folks. Hey, Ellie. Oh. just said, log on now, guys. Hannah, why are you blue? What oh, color yeah. do you want me to be, Chaya? Hey, uh, any. You could be any color. Yeah. Addy, Hannah, you're magic. Look at it. It's nice. I can be rainbow too. Hey, Tita, Nora. Hi. Hi, everyone. Come sit. Guys, Ali's joining today's class. Hamza, who? Oh, wait. Yeah, I sent the link to so many friends. I hope oh, that they oh, join. Oh. Let me just. Hi, is it fun for us to send it to other people? Yeah, she said it was open. Otzi, is that your sister? <laughs> this is my lovely sister, Gabriella. Hi, Gabriella. <laughs> okay. Hi, Nakama. Hi. Hi, the audio is up. She, uh, my teacher. Hello, Rabbi. All right. Do you want to come sit? There are a lot of people, so people are not going to hear each other. I don't know. Raise our hand to speak. Is there a raising hand option? Yeah, there's like a bottom, like, yeah, there is bottom right, and you can say thumbs up or like, oh, hand clap. Okay. I see what Oh, raise your hand. Oh. All right. 
muted all of you. Imagine if I do that in real life. Class would be very different. Okay. Um, hey, someone unmuted themselves. Okay. All right, so we're going to have a class about Pesach. There's obviously a lot to discuss on Pesach. What we're going to do for this class is we're going to talk about the central myth which in our times is the midst of eating matzah. Now, I have a lot, and we all know my, my uh, tendency is that as I go through um, trying to get through everything, I generally do not get anywhere close to what I intended. Um, so we will probably not finish half of what I want to cover in this hour, but we will make an attempt. Okay. So we'll start off like this. Ohar says that Masa is called the food of Emuna. And yes, Emuna is a Hebrew word, and I didn't translate it. And the reason why I didn't translate it is this is so much harder to teach this, but you can't just shout out the answers without speaking all over each other. Why am I not translating the word Emuna? Someone have an idea. Anybody? You can unmute yourself so to answer the question. Hello? Yes. <laughs> just because it can't be captured in translation. There's like more no. to it than just the word in translation. There is. That's right. It is a technical term. Okay. Use a specific way. And if we translate it, then everybody's biases as to what they think the word means is going to get dragged up. So we're going to start like this. Okay. We have... We're gonna, we're, we have a bias in the way we think about things, that we rank things in a hierarchy. Then to say, this thing is on top of that thing. This thing is better than that thing. And with a little bit of reflection, we can realize that that's just not true. So for is seeing better than hearing or hearing better than seeing? And it should be obvious after half a second, the reflection that it's true that seeing is better than hearing in certain respects, but it's true that hearing is better than seeing in other respects. Just very, very simply, um, you hear in all directions. You can only see in one direction. Okay. Um, in order to see, things have to be in a direct line of sight to you. There can't be things in blocking in between. You can hear what's going on the other side of a, of a, of a, of a, a wall or on the other side of a, a building. Okay? So the range of, of hearing is much greater. Right? On the other hand, hearing requires a lot of interpretation. Right? If I hear a sound, I have to compare it to my catalog that I've heard and use context to make an assumption as to what it is that I heard. Okay? Um, that's actually why it's easier to create the sound effects for a film than it is to create the visual effects. Because sound effects, um, you know, you can, all sorts of things make random sounds that if you put them in different contexts, the mind will be tricked into interpreting that sound entirely differently. But seeing tends to be, we tend to see things as they're presented, as they are. Um, and so things that, that 
it's actually harder to mislead a person with seeing. I know that it's not hundred percent, but okay. Um, and so there's a sense of vividness and clarity that we usually associate with sight that isn't necessarily true with hearing. Um, and then you could go on with other things. You can think about, you know, is it better to have legs or, 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 or arms? And each one has their own virtues. Okay. So the reason why I'm bringing this up is that when we're going to talk about this thing called imuna, it's very important you don't fall into the trap of thinking things in a hierarchy and saying this is better and this is worse. We have to understand what way imuna is superior to other things and what way imuna is inferior to other things. And the way we're going, the way we're going to start with this is we're going to go like is that the word emuna in Hebrew has the same root as the word amen. Like you say at the end of a blessing, someone says a blessing, a bracha, and you say amen. And amen and the word mess are the same. They have the same general root. In other words, the word amen and the word emes, they're two variations of the same thing. So, and the word emes we know is truth. The word amen at its core centers around this notion of truth. So emuna is something to do with truth. Okay. Now the way the Zohar actually puts it in another section of the Zohar, the Zohar says, he is truth and she is emuna. Who emes? The ihi emuna. He is truth, he is emes, and she is emuna. Now, why would we be t- making the truth masculine and emuna feminine? Does anyone have any ideas why? Well, we've done this in class before. When we gender things in, in Chassidus or in Kabbalah or in Judaism in general, that, 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 that's, that's because there's a conceptual distinction being made that the gender is... So why would truth be considered male and then emuna, which also is related to truth, be considered again not it's a little tricky because you don't know what emuna is yet, but would it be like would it be like in the sense of like giving and receiving? Very like good. That's right. differentiating male right. and female. The, ba- the basic difference between male and female is male is bestowing and female is receiving. So that means MS is giving, bestowing, and Amuna is receiving. And that we now have a basic definition of Amuna, is that Amuna is that which receives MS. It's that which receives the truth. Okay. So let's, let's talk about physical senses first, and then we'll move back to Amuna. Um, things have different properties. One property they have is colors. Right? Certain things are red, certain things are green, certain things are purple, etc. There is a part of us which is receptive to the color. Of that part of us is called the power of sight. Our vision receives, it's receptive to, it senses the color of objects. Okay. Now, if assuming that you can see and assuming that you're not colorblind, so your sight is working properly, how do you know that a red thing is red and a green thing is green? And I'm not talking about the word. I'm not saying how do you know that it's called red? How do you know that the red apple is red and the green apple is green? How do you know? And the answer no. what? You don't. You don't? 
You walk into the store, you see the apples, you're like, I don't know which one's red and I don't know which one's green. They're just different. Well, they just look different. That's right. They just look different. So you, you know. Your perception is the truth. Because you assign that truth to it. Assign <laughs> that truth to it. What yeah. Because <laughs> you decided, you decided that that apple is red, like a stop sign in the U.S. I don't know. About one second, one second. You, you want to tell me that you sat down one day and you're like, you know what? I'm going to make the stop sign be perceived as by the, the same color phenomena as the, these apples. And I'm going to, yeah, that, that you actually sat down and rationally, or I don't know, you came to some sort of thing and you altered your mental state so that now you perceive reality that way. That's how it happened. I mean, that's no, what my, my experience is that for as long as time as I remember, certain things appear red and other green, and that's just the way it is. I don't recall yeah. deciding. Other people told you that was red. Other people told you that the red apple was red. Not asking about the words. But the how colors, do you know though. That? Other people told you, like, this is this and that is that. Other people told you that. No. Oh, other people did not do that. Other people did not do that at all. Nobody sat down with you and said, look, here is a, here's this thing. This is red. And they sat in the green. This is green. They're not the same color. You knew that they were not the same color before anybody comes along. Well, you were able Did you to say it was that we've trained ourselves to like every no. time we see the difference between them, that we like you don't know the difference from like seeing it so often. No, you. I mean, th that's just not how it works. There are things with our social constructs. I mean, I'm, I'm in favor of social constructs, but color is not one of them. Wait, the class. There, there, there is true that the way we classify color in society is a social construct. So some societies will have certain colors and then break the aids and other colors will describe them as distinct colors, okay? But that's, that's a social convention. But red and green, again, assuming you're not colorblind, if you're driving, right, and you see a red light and you see a light, you qualitatively experience the quality of that color differently. That is part of your perception of reality it's, that's built in. There's nothing, there's nothing, um, what do you call it? There's, there's nothing socially constructed. There's no convention involved there. And you directly perceive it. Unless you're colorblind, if you're colorblind, how do you know that the red light is red and the green light is green? True, training yourself to see it every time. No, colorblind people is it, can't. Is it the order of the lights? It's the order of the lights. Now you have a social convention. The social convention is we put all the red light on top and the green light on the bottom. And so now all the colorblind people know that if the top light is on, that's the red light. And if the bottom light is on, that's the green light. But they don't actually experience the difference in the red and the green light. If they're really colorblind. Red, green, colorblind. There are other things like this, hot and cold, right? How do you know that something is hot or something is cold when you touch it? Do you need some sort of external indicator? You directly perceive the hot heat of and the cool of the cool thing, right? We, we do have a perception of reality, okay? okay. Now, one of the things that, now, so, so there, are, there are parts of us that are directly receptive to certain phenomena. So sight is directly receptive to color, okay? Um, touch is, is directive to things like texture and heat. Right? If you rub your hand across the sandpaper and you rub your hand across the glass, right, 
you directly perceive and you experience the roughness of one and the smoothness of the other. Okay. Now, there are other things that are, that are like that, that are not as tangible in this physical sense, okay? When someone feels loved, okay, that, that, that feel, an experience of feeling loved, right? Now, what happens if someone doesn't feel loved and you try and explain to them, but look, X, I did X for you, I did Y for you, I did this for you, I did there for you. So clearly all of those things clearly indicate that I love you. Does that make the person feel loved? No. It's like telling the colorblind person, look, the top one is red and the bottom one is green. Does that help the person see the redness of the red and the green? No. Because there's a very different thing between there's a very different thing between having an indicator of something and being receptive to the thing itself, actually picking up on that phenomenon, actually having a sense of the phenomenon itself. Okay. Now, we live in a in a society where our ability to use indicators is very powerful, and so we tend to make an error and, and just treat everything that way. For instance, um, a lot of research when we study things, yeah, let's just take a modern thing, right? Uh, how do we know if someone has coronavirus? Let's use a modern, you know, timely they example. Positive. Then positive. How does that test? Can you see the virus? Virus have a certain taste to it. Oh, I taste the coronaness of them. No, like how do you know they have the virus? They match the RNA or DNA of the virus. They get a swab. They do a swab. Okay, so they do a swab, and then what do they do? And then they test it. They test it. See, there's a genetic material. And then what? Sit through the microscope, and they compare. One of these and one of those and one of those. How do, how do, I got? do you know how it actually the, how they do it? They compare the code of the genetic material. I don't know if I can use your... How do they compare it? Like well, I, can, uh, I can sit down with two, with two, with two notebooks and, and see is the words in this notebook like that notebook, right? But we're talking about, we're talking about things that are very, very large, millions and millions of, 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 of atoms. You're talking about RNA molecules that are very small and, and, and have a lot. How do they do that? They shine light and they're like, this is probably an A. This is probably a T, but I guess it's probably, it's not actually the A or okay. the T. Okay. So my point is that there's a lot of this correlates and then that correlates with that and that correlates with that. And therefore likely this is the same thing as that, right? It's like, it's basically doing what we do for the colorblind people, but a million times over. Instead of directly having, experiencing the phenomena, the reality, what you're doing is saying, this probably correlates with that and that correlates that. That points to something that I can actually see which the screen says positive, right? So there, there's this, there's, we have these, these, these faculties to directly sense different parts of reality, physically colors, taste with our sense of taste, heat and texture with touch, et cetera. And then also with, say, for instance, psychologists, we have the ability to 
sense how others really feel about us, okay? Um, we have the ability to sense what others are feeling, we call that empathy, right? We have these ability to experience aspects of reality. So getting all the way back to the Zohar, if you want to experience, if you want to have a sense that of the truth of something, that something has truth, we'll talk about truth in a second, what that is, then what faculty do you need? Sight helps with color, taste helps with tastes, touch helps with, um, with texture, empathy helps with emotion. What if you want to sense the truth of something? Not to have a good argument that it's true, not to have an indication that's true, you actually want to experience the truth of it. Then what would you need? faith in it you would need to have well so so immune is actually the faculty that allows you to experience the truth of something yes you're raising your physical hand so are we talking about because we're talking about faculties are we using the same terminology as we did for Mido, or are we switching our definition with faculty um, it's similar definition. Well, the, 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 in Tanya, he doesn't start discussing Imuna as a faculty chapter 18. And where does it fall under? It falls under Chachma. But not the way we explained Chachma in chapter 3. Okay. Now, so the thing is, Imuna has the ability to sense the truth. Now, in order, yes. What does that mean that it falls under? It falls under what? Chachma? What does that? What does it mean? It falls it means, under. It means if you wanted to put Imuna in the text of the different powers of the soul that are discussed in Tanya, it, it it's it, it it's it goes with it goes to Chachma. I don't want to get more into that because that's like branches too far off. But when we get to chapter eighteen at some point, you know, in the next twenty years. And we'll learn about it. Okay. So now the question is, well, what is the truth? Okay. So the, the truth is something which is that way without any external justification. It doesn't have anything else that makes it be the case. And because that's because of that, it never changes. Right. So when a when 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 so when, yeah. So when a scientist is looking for truth, what are they looking for? looking for what things are constant that are always the case that aren't dependent upon anything else. Those are the sort of the fundamentals. Now, ultimately there's only one truth and that one truth is Hashem. And to really sense the truth is it means you sense the absoluteness, you sense the reality, you sense the significance of it. You can directly pick up on that. Okay. And that's not something you can just say. It's not something you agree to. It's actually an experience that a person has. Okay. Now, that experience 
is very much similar to like the experience of seeing or tasting. If you see something red, you send. If you taste something sweet, you see this. If you have a muna, you're not agreeing that it's true. You sense the truth. And if you sense the truth, you, if someone asks you a question that, well, the truth doesn't make sense, you're like, so I can't explain it, but that doesn't make it not true. If someone has a very convincing argument to you that something that appears to be red isn't really red, what is the normal psychological response to that argument? I don't know. We have an argument, okay, but I mean, it's still, it's red. I mean, I can see it. It's red. Yeah. You taste something that's sweet and someone tells you, oh, that's not really sweet. Really something else? I mean, maybe, but it, it, it's sweet. In other words, we have an ability to, to, to when we sense sense of phenomena, we have a sense that's the reality. And the fact that there is a good argument or a contradictory point, that doesn't seem to, okay, that's a problem. I don't know how to explain that, but that's a side issue. It doesn't take away from the fact that, that the reality is what I've experienced it to be. Yes, there's two hands. Oh. One of you decide which one you want to go first. Okay. I don't know who was raising their hand, so I'm going to go. Okay. Um, so in those examples, those seem like very subjective experiences. Like the only way that one is experiencing those truths is how can one even relate that to someone else? You so then can't, how can we all have it? You can't. You can't. It's a very, in other words, they are all subjective. That's right. right. All direct experience is only to the one experiencing it. And you just have to have a standing assumption that other people experience reality like you do. I mentioned this, but when I was a little kid, I was very bothered by the question of who says your experience of red is the same as my experience of red. And you know what I concluded? There's no way for me to know if it is or it isn't. Now, it's clearly correlated very nicely that everything I call experience of red, you call an experience. So, you know, it's all correlates, but, but whether they're the same or not, we, that's very hard to tell. Now, when you talk about physical phenomena, we're pretty comfortable with saying, okay, there's an objective reality. People subjectively experience that reality is messed up. So if someone bites into a lemon and says, ooh, that's sweeter than sugar, we say there's something wrong with you, right? We don't say that's your perspective, right? If, if somebody, if you hold up a stop sign in front of a person and they say, that's green, we say, okay, there's something wrong with you, right? But then when we move to the more ethereal elements of things, we become a lot more hesitant of labeling what's actually a defect in the person's ability to reality and what's just a matter of personal opinion. I'm not going to get into that debate right now, but the idea is that there is an objective reality to the truth. And a person has the ability to sense the truth as a direct, as, as a direct sense perception. And that's called a moon. Feel like to have a moon. Well, I will tell you, have you ever had a two-year-old about their parents? Yes. Find a two-year-old and ask them who their parents are. And then start asking them how they know that they're their parents and what does it mean that they're their parents? And you have to be specific because you can't say parents. That's too general. You have to use mother or father. Yeah. So you go to a little two-year-old, three-year-old says, where's your mommy? Okay. How do you know she's your mommy? What does it mean that you're your mommy? 
what's the two-year-old's reaction going to be to those You're on mute, unmute yourself. Because it's my mommy. That's right. There's this sense of certainty in the reality with no, no making sense of it, no explaining it, right? And then it's fun to have conversations with kids about this because you can like, the conversation just ends up circling back because that's my mommy, right? Until the child gets bored of like, why are you going and then they like walk away and do something else. Right? It's hard to give a two-year-old an existential crisis. Okay. Now, on the other hand, to give an 18-year-old an existential crisis is extremely simple. Why? Because an 18-year-old presumes that I'm supposed to have a good rationalization and explanation for everything. When you expose the, the, the falsehood of that, they feel very, very like, well, but, but how am I ever going to, like, if I don't have that external scaffolding to what I'm doing, there's, there's, a, there's a lack of bearing. Okay? Because explanation and rationalization, textualization and analysis, all these things, they're, they're not very good at establishing a certainty about reality because they're not dealing with that. Imun is that quality that a person has said, this is the reality. I don't know what it is exactly. I don't know how to define it. This is my mommy and this is my dad. Very distinct, right? You know, um, and it's, it's, it's developing, it, it, it's picking, not developing, it's, it's picking up on the sense that there is an actual reality. There's an actual truth to things. And that that is that way. It doesn't see, and that faculty in a person, um, it's a very immature faculty. It's not sophisticated. It's not nuanced. Okay? It also it doesn't necessarily motivate you to do anything. But what it does is it sets a foundation. Okay? Yes. So why do so many people translate Amuna as faith and then speak about faith as something you need to cultivate when you're painting Amuna as something that is, in, is innate and cannot be cultivated? Uh, it depends. Are you asking why I teach Chassidus speak that way or people who don't teach Chassidus speak that way? I don't know. I feel like I've always heard it translated and like connoted that way. If that's a okay. word. So the idea is like this. You cannot, let's use an example, okay? You cannot um, cultivate um, your sense of touch, can you? Let's use that, right? I mean, you have it. However, there are a few things you can do. First off, um, you can definitely do things that damage your sense of touch, right? For instance, if you burn yourself, right, the nerve endings don't work so well. Or what if you are very, what if, you, what, what if you're very hungry, right? What if you're very distracted? You're, you, in other words, your relationship with of touch can also be disturbed, okay? which not always is a bad thing, right? You'll notice that like, you know, um, 
very often if you sit down to read a book, a couch, you like notice if the couch is uncomfortable, not uncomfortable, you shift around, right? But once you're in the book, do you actually notice the physical position you're in and the texture of the, of, of the, of the upholstery on the couch? No. Why? Because your mind has shifted somewhere else, right? So it's not that the sense of touch elf is something you work on, but your relationship with it can be worked on, can be enhanced the opposite. So really, when, we, when, when, Chassidus, when we speak about imuna, we don't speak, have more imuna. You need to work on your imuna, do more imuna. You need to work on your relationship with your imuna. And that relationship can be strengthened and it can be weakened. It can be, it can be, you can add maturity to it. You can take a, you can do things between you as the actual volition being and this faculty of the moon, just like you can do that with other faculties. Okay. So some faculties you can actually strengthen, right? Intellect strengthen. You use your intellect, it gets stronger. Okay. Strength, physical strength. You use your strength, it gets stronger. Okay. Empathy. You use your empathy, your empathy gets stronger. But then the other faculties are like using your sight does not make your sight any stronger. Using your sense of touch does not make it stronger. But you can change your relationship with it, and you can certainly do things that enable the sight to work better, right? So, for instance, if you're, you know, I wear glasses to enhance the sight because it's not so good, right? You can have laser surgery. Eating certain foods can enhance or harm it. But it's not something you work on in the sense of, like, in the sense of, like, the intellect or empathy. Is that clear? Yes. So you said that though it's innate, it's not nuanced and it's simply a foundation. A foundation for what? Well, anytime you're going to relate to anything, the first um, thing that needs to be kind of be in place is that sense that it's real and that it matters. And um, if you... you if, 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 if the thing that you're working on to justify something is real or something is true, something really is important, if that's what you're working on, then in a strange kind of way, you're not actually relating with to it. Okay? Um, I'll just give you an example. Okay? People who spend all their time trying to prove that there's a God are not actually standing in any relationship to God. If you want to think about it, imagine that you have a, you married and your husband spends a lot of time trying to prove that you exist. Whether well, offer to other people, what would that say about his sense? He's written a very convincing tome and has a very popular YouTube lecture series prove that his wife really exists. What does that say about his sense of you? Right, like the fact that this is, person is real, right? They're a real person. Like that's kind of like the basis, and then we work from there, right? So, the, the 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 this the sense of of God being real, God being true, is not the work on in order to have a relationship with Hashem. 
That's the thing that has to be there so that you can even talk about having a relationship with Hashem. Does that make sense? So it's a foundation for building? Yeah, for building anything. So let's use parents. When do, par- when do children get immune in their parents? When do they ha- start to have this immune in their parents? At what Anyone know? Roughly speaking. Age two? Around two-ish. That's right. And what goes along? They actually start saying, they actually start having a sense in their mind, ability to articulate, this is my mom, this is my tati, this is my mother, this is my father. They actually, right, they develop an awareness of that, okay? That, that ability to sense the truth of this social phenomenon of being, you know, the child of parents. And it doesn't mean that they, at that point, understand what fatherhood and motherhood is at all, right? I mean, there's usually, you know, a, a large gap in years, usually 10 or more, depending on, you know, the specifics of when a child first has a sense of the other that they can say, mommy, and the child actually has a sense what it means that this is my mother. What is that? What makes them my mother, right? What does that necessitate? What does that obligate them me towards? That like, conception of motherhood comes much later, or fatherhood, right? So understanding is, is something that is a distinct faculty separate from the immune faculty in a way that, like seeing and tasting and hearing and touch separate faculties. They each have their own version. It's not that one is better than the other, each other place, and it's wrong to think of a moon as lack of understanding. It's an independent thing. Yes. So when a baby is like eight months old and starts developing separation anxiety, so they're only comforted if they're being held by a person who at, like, at least smells like mom or dad, how is that different than what you're saying they develop at two? And is there a similar thing in a relationship with God where like you can start out knowing there is something out there, but you don't know that it's God. And then you get so, to a point of like, this is my God. Yeah. So I would say like, I would say this, there's a stage at which it's mere, it's more sensory rather than for lack of what's God, right? The infant doesn't have an, 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 it's not just they lack the ability to say the word mommy. They have no sense that this is mommy. They're, they're aware that certain stimuli, they act positive certain stimuli, act negatively the absence of that stimuli. They develop a sense of familiarity with that. There is no cognitive sense of, 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 of ascribing of identity of labeling, of naming, and therefore there's no concept of calling. Okay? But when a two-year-old says mommy and then follows the mother around the house or tati and follows her, there's, there's something else going on there. There's an actual sense of this is someone I have an, an attached to that. Beyond that, what, why? I don't know what, I don't know what, but, but this, this someone is a distinct someone to me and I have a, and, 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 it, and it's, fundamental my reality as a human being of, of, of being attached to them and belonging with them. And therefore, the, the, you know, two-year-olds, they orbit their kid, their parents, and they, 
you know, they want to be held. And, and that continues, you know, under undercurrent all the way to the time you're like 99. It still exists on something very deep down in your psyche. That, that, so now the same thing with, with, with God. There are things that a religious person or a devout person would look at that person and say, oh, the reason why that feels good is because you're more in alignment with God. The reason why that feels negative is you're more in a disalignment with God. But that doesn't mean that the person themselves on experiencing that has any sense of God at all. Right? A person who's acting, it's like people say, why do I need God to be moral? I can be moral without God. I have a sense of morality on my own. And the religious person is like, yeah, you're just sensing God. You just said the divine morality that God embeds within within you're not you're not you're not being you're not you're not being moral without God. Yeah, it's it's, it's ridiculous as the infants as the I mean, infants can't talk, but it'll be ridiculous as the infant saying, "Oh, I can feel comforted without my mother. I just need certain scents and textures." Yeah, but those scents are of your mother. I mean, that's it's. But then there's a different thing. We actually said, no, no, this is true. There really is some, there really is, you really is someone. And then relationship, then I can feel attached. Then I can feel a sense of belonging. Okay? And that's why what happens in Pesach, the Jews follow Hashem out into the desert. Right? When, it, when a parent starts walking, where does the two-year-old go? It follows the parent. Where? Wherever the parent goes. Where my parent goes, that's where I belong. So that sense of hiskashus, of attachment, belonging, that flows from this sense of this, this is the truth. The truth, Hashem is a real being, and I sense that for myself. Not I have evidence for it, not I have arguments for it, not I have a justification for it. I sense it the way I can, I can see red is different than green. I can taste sugar is sweet and lemons are sour. I sense the truth of it. And I, for I feel my... How I feel that 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 the attachment. However, that can be a very um, passive, superficial thing. That can be very powerful. That can affect a person in different ways, depending on their relationship with that aspect of themselves. So the way it's described in Chassidus is that everyone has a moon naturally. But that a moon needs that. But their relationship with that moon can fluctuate. And specifically when it comes to Pesach, there's one aspect of Amuna that we focus on, which is what's called strengthening the Amuna. Now, just to go back, why is it that age two, a child begins to have the ability to start identifying their mother as their mother, their father as their father? In the Gemara, the Talmud tells us that the reason for that is because the child then starts eating bread. They start eating grains. When do you shift from nursing a baby to start giving them grains at around age two? So it has to do with the fact that they're eating grains. Now, at this point, to move to spiritual stuff, um, so some of the things that we speak about, we can find corollaries in science or psychology, and some of the things... Um, the, the methods that psychology or science use pick up on certain phenomena. Okay. this has a question which shows up in a lot of places. How is it possible that food enhances human function? 
Okay. Why, when I eat food, my ability to function as a human being is enhanced. And the reason why that's problematic is that Chassidus understands that human functioning is a product of your soul, not of your body. Right? What, what, what makes you human? Your ability to reason, your ability to feel, your sense of purpose, free will, all these things, all those things, they, they, they allow you to function in the being. And those are essentials of the soul. And the food that we eat doesn't have a human soul, right? The food that we eat, generally speaking, are plants and animals. And their functioning is on a lower level. The soul of an animal is a, less, um, a lesser form of existence than the soul of a human being. It can't function, it can't manifest itself on all of the profound ways that a human being can. And the soul of a plant, even less so. And so how does it make that the thing which is lacking, the soul of the plant or the soul of the ant, actually enhances the functioning of the higher, more sophisticated being the soul of a person. That would be like saying that the ignorant person is teaching the informed person. How does that make any sense? The ignorant person is ignorant of what the informed, and the informed person is informed. It should work the other way around. Right? So, I mean, the world goes away, but there's a certain logic that animals should eat people because then they would get enhanced human soul that would be in, you know, incorporated into them because when you eat something, it was part of you. And then plants should eat animals because then they would be enhanced. But yet we see the other way around. Animals eat plants, then people eat plants and animals. So why is the lower thing enhancing and, ele- and, and, and improving the higher form of existence? And the reason for that, Siddha says, is that really everything has godly energy to it. And the godly energy in it does not necessarily correlate to the things themselves in an obvious way. So it's not the case that a higher form instance has a higher level of godly energy. In fact, it's usually the reverse. Usually, the lower something is in its form of existence, the higher and more powerful the godly energy within it. Now, there's, a, there's an analogy that's used to explain this idea, which is if you have a, a wall made of stones, the wall down, the stone that's furthest from the wall was the stone that was highest in the wall, right? Stone that was at the base of the wall doesn't move at all. So there's a principle that the higher something is in its godly energy, the lower its manifestation as a created entity. Which, by the way, means what is the, which entities have the powerful godliness within Following that logic, by the way. Like rocks, minerals? Yeah. Just physical stuff. Yeah. So um, that would explain the emphasis on doing mitzvahs using physical objects, right? Or does the, that have to? Yeah. Does that have to do with like the ability to elevate something, or that's just like their their like if they were to be elevated to their fullest potential, they would have the highest so, energy. Or- so so th- there's really there's really two two 
dimensions to something's relationship with the godly energy. One is the godly energy on. Two, how much does it actually reflect or express that energy? So the rule is the things that do the, wor the worst job of expressing godly energy contain the highest. And the things that express godly energy the best actually contain lower forms of godly energy. So, it, so what it, and that's the idea of elevating. So the idea of elevating something is getting it to reveal and express the full godly energy. Okay. So now with that, is that plants and animals actually have something to offer a person, not because they are on a higher level of existence, they're not, and not because they reveal something greater than a human being, they don't, but they contain a godly energy that's superior to a person. And so by eating grain, eating the grain, that actually is the person, because now the person is being infused with an energy that's a higher than the and that's what actually enables the person's amuna to start to take cognitive shape. And here I don't mean amuna in the sense of amuna and Hashem. I mean amuna in the basic sense of reality of a human being. So it's by eating food that the, the capacity to have a sense of the reality of this is my mother, this is my father, actually starts to sh take shape in the mind of the child so that they can actually directly experience, feel that sense of a belonging and actually call out for their mother and their father. That what you're seeing when you look at the infant who doesn't eat food, you're seeing the immuna, but the immuna that hasn't, have, that hasn't been strengthened enough, so it doesn't have any foothold in the psyche. It's, it's, it's present, but there's no actual manifestation of it. And by eating food, it actually starts to take hold of the psyche and influence the psyche and be present in such a way that the child actually expresses that, and that starts to change how the child um, behaves and what they desire, et cetera, yeah. So the eating of any type of food, it like translates that energy into emuna, that spiritual energy into like- Well, no, different, different foods strengthen different faculties of the person. Grain specifically has an effect on emuna. Sorry, grain has an effect on? Grain has an effect on emuna. Okay. Different foods have different effects on 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 ways. Yes. So, how do we know which foods affect which faculties? You ask a Kabbalist. Because God doesn't work in randomized control studies, so there's no way to do statistical analysis. Statistics presuppose that everything is random or evenly distributed. But um, if God is running the world with divine providence, statistics are not going to be very, because you don't really, um, you know, the other factors that God puts in. But all things being equal, the, the grain strengthens that. Now, eating regular grain strengthens Muna in the human level of reality. The truth of things like having a mother, having a father, and all that goes along with having an identity and a place in society and blah, 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 blah. But when you, instead of eating just regular grain, you eat matzah, and it strengthens your imuna in Hashem. Okay? And that is only true if you're eating matzah when it's a mitzvah. Okay? So eating matzah on the night of Pesach, as is required, 
it aside from being a divine commandment, it also has an actual effect on the person, which is it strengthens their immuna. Now, I would like to, yes. So does that mean the same thing if you're just um, eating matzah on a daily basis? Does that still count as like uh, putting you in a higher place or does it not because it's not really clear mitzvah? So, so the answer is that it doesn't. There is some, there is some, some d- discussion about eating matzah on the rest of Pesach because the mitzvah of matzah is only the night of the Seder, the first night. Um, in all of the discourses where this is discussed, it just talks about how eating matzah throughout Pesach also enhances the imuna, but on the base of eating matzah the first night when it's a mitzvah. Parenthetically, the Rebbe would eat matzah year-round except for 30 days before Pesach. I'm sure there's some significance to that, although I, the Rebbe never told me, so I don't know what it is. Um, and... The, the idea, so, 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 so it's primarily, the, it, 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 it primarily is the eating of matzah at the Seder and secondarily eating matzah throughout Pesach. Okay. Now, I want to just give a little bit of sense of what it actually means. So we're not just talking about in the air. Okay. Um, I mentioned before having discussions with two-year-olds about like their parents and they go in circles. Okay, so... Not here is willing to humiliate themselves publicly. You can unmute yourself if you want. Okay. I will. Okay. So, why is it important to love this candle? I couldn't hear you. Why is it important to have candles? Um, to bring in the Shabbat, like to remember to like bring in Shabbat. Well, no, because you have to remember Shabbos in order to light the candles, not on time. So, why is it important to light the candles? Because no one Shabbos is before, in order to light the candles. Anyway, Isn't it because so. like you always need to do something physical to like bring down an energy, like of Hashem? What, what is it? How does doing something bring down an energy? And what is this energy talking about? Like. For Hashem to like do something for us in the physical world, we have to like do something physical for Him to wow. be able to give us something. For to Him to give us Shabbat, we have to physically light the candles. Why? Because He, we need to also like put effort into something for Him to give us something. You realize that you just keep saying the same thing in other words over and over again. Yes. And that's what happens when you talk to Jews. And they start sounding like two-year-olds. Cool. Because, because, the, because, because you can have a sense that something is real and something is true and something is significant and have no idea what it is. And so you just are parroting the words that other people have given you. Which I'm not making you saying this to make fun of you. This is true of all of us. But that, yeah, no, fact, person, that fact that a person can say, yes, a mitzvah connects me to Hashem. And they, they have words for that, but, but there's not, but, but all it is is, is, is since this is true, that's the imuna we're talking about. And so, Iyatsa actually has, takes that part of our soul, which has the ability to sense this truth that a mitzvah really does condemn, and you really do need to participate in this in order to have really everything. It takes that and gives that a, 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 a foothold in your cognitive space, in your mind. And it actually starts to reshape that your mind becomes more 
comfortable with that, more, has more place for that. Because the mat has power to enhance that ability. And so the actual truth is that if you want to have more certainty about your relationship with Hashem and Torah and mitzvahs, the most important thing you can do is make sure to eat matzah properly. Yeah. Isn't there a similarity of <clears throat> the physical work that is used to um, do the mitzvahs? Is it similar to what has been said in the Torah? You know, um, all the sacrifices that have been made to bring an offering to Hashem or the, the work that they have to do, such as like building the temple to be a, a place of worship like the, it's all about physical labor i'm just wondering if it if the physical properties that we do now for the mitzvahs kind of pertain to something that has been told or reconstructed yeah, in no, the... it's exactly right it's, it's it's the exact same thing but the point is we don't really know what that means we can have a sense that that's true without really knowing what that means but yeah it's the same the reason why the temple has to be physical, the sacrifice has to be physical, the same reason we do physical mitzvahs now. And, but, so what eating matzah actually does is it strengthens our, our, our sense that that's real, not because it gives us a moon, we have a moon, but because it, it, it gives the moon a stronger foothold in the psyche. Similar anyone, to what happens to the child. Does anyone know why then we, um, we do the physical labor for the mitzvahs then? Yes. But um, I just want to point out that Pesach is the beginning of our individual, right? After Pesach, there's counting the Omer, there's Shavuos, the giving of the Torah. In other words, what we're talking about now is the critical setting of the foundation. And one who has that foundation, there's place to then come to some understanding of things, Right? But when you don't have that foundation, then everything just becomes like a, 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 a an abstract theory and a, and a idea. And so, what 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 my, you know again aside from being a mitzvah is meant to do is say setting aside whether we understand it, we don't understand it, how much we understand it. There's a much more fundamental is how much do we sense that this is true, that this is real. And that has to be a subjective sense. It has to be a sense that you actually sense, that actually ha has roots in your cognitive mind. And you can't argue that. You can't way into that. But, but giving, well, eating matzah, the, the, the matzah has the ability to give that a, a stronger hold, a stronger um, foothold, your actual experience of reality that you can then build on and try and make sense of things, try and understand things. And we don't stay two our whole lives, right? So it's not to stay two. Yes. Someone has their hand raised with a little yeah. hand symbol. I did that. Um, what is the difference though between, I guess I'm a little confused about what's so special about matzah. Like what are eating kala on Shabbos or um, I'm trying to think of other, so, I guess, call and talk is my best example. So the reason, the, the very simple reason, um, and then Bezos Hashem, maybe we'll talk about this in the next class, maybe we won't, but the very simple reason is matzah is dough. And you think, well, isn't challah dough? And the answer is no, challah is not dough. It's not dough. Flour and water. 
Bread is you take flour and it rises. It has additional volume, texture, and taste above and beyond just the flour. In other words, it isn't as is. It's enhanced. And that enhancement makes it much more pleasurable, much more easy to digest. Um, but it also takes away from the very simple fact that it's just flour and water. And so matzah is flour and water that have any enhancements. You can't add flavorings to it um, in order to do the mitzvah with it. It also can't, rock, can't have additional volume or additional texture. It's literally just dough as is. And that's really the idea of the realizing is to just sense this is the truth as is. The truth is doing a mitzvah connects you to Hashem. The truth is Hashem is real and cares about you. That just, it is that way as is. And trying to make sense of things and explain them and contextualize them, that's an enhancement. So the, the, we want to eat but just as is. Like a moon as is. That's the simple answer. Um, there are other ideas as well. Okay. Um, just to, 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 you know, which person has which person has a which person cares more about their child who's ill the doctor or the lay person the doctor understands really all the medical issues who cares more the doctor or the lay person if a doctor's child is sick and they, and and you've read lay person child is sick does the doctor care more about child or the lay person care more about their child which which parent cares more can you define that person? Not a doctor. Lay person just means not, not, not a professional, whatever profession you're talking about. Well, I don't think there's a comparison, really, it, because um, even though a laborer might not know, like, the medical terminology or whatever, that could be frightening for them. But meanwhile, the doctor who knows all the medical terminology and knows what's going on and knows how serious it is can also be very worrisome. So... I guess it just depends on situation. Yeah. So what you're saying is that all that matters is that this child is sick, and if the parent cares about the parent cares about the child, the sicker the child is, the more the parent's concerned, right? Having all the medical enhanced knowledge doesn't face the fact this is my child and I'll be healthy. It's just that simple fact. That truth. Right. The idea that by having a better understanding and being able to put it, that, that, that enhances on a lot of levels, but on the fundamental level, it makes no difference. And the idea, we, want it, we don't want to be sidetracked by that. So the same thing, you have just the dough, just the flour and the water, that's it. No rising, no yeast, no texture, no flavor, nothing. That's why the way why I'm actually supposed to even dip the matzah in salt the night of the Seder when you're eating the matzah. You're supposed to just eat the matzah without even having salt, even though you normally dip bread in salt. Yeah. Is there any symbolization of the holes in the matzah or the lines? No, the holes are just a practical thing because if you put, put the holes in it, make sure that it doesn't rise. You don't need the holes. Depending on how you make matzah, um, it, matzah does, does, matzah actually doesn't need to be thin. You can theoretically make matzah up to eight centimeters thick. But remember what I said about being dough? 
Right, exactly. It's gross, right? Eight thick cooked dough. It's not, there's not, it's, it's yeah. Um, the, the, the bread in the, in, in, in the temple, the lechem upon him, was matzah, by the way. And it was, a centi- it was eight centimeters thick. It was, it was not appealing to eat. <laughs> so, I mean, it was because it was a miracle, but like, if you made something like that, it wouldn't be appealing. It's like, ew. Anyway, we eat very hard and thin matzah for both halachic and culinary reasons. Um, so, but yeah, matzah does not need to have holes in it. It just makes it easier to make. All right. Bez Hashem, there'll be another shir next week, um, also on Pesach. And um, everyone have a wonderful Pesach if I don't see you then. And um, stay healthy. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. I am the host now. <laughs> Whoa, that was crazy. I'm the winner. Who's the host? Oh, Hannah's. Hannah's here. Huh? Okay. Oh, Hannah's also back in the camera. What? Hey, Mom. You got some cameras? Yeah, I don't want Rabbi Kaufman seeing me take his class with this. <laughs> mm. Hi. <laughs> you're like, you're tomorrow, During class, you put your head yeah. back to sleep. Now you just lie down. Well, I was full on laying down the whole class. <laughs> okay, I just have to... I just have to say, I had my first official Robbie Kaufman class where I was listening and I had to go to the bathroom. Like, oh my gosh, what do I do? Which is the more important value here? You can't We've all been there. Because when you listen, when you listen on SoundCloud, you can just pause it. But like, he was, this, oh wow, this is intense. Love sharing a class with you guys, ladies. I'm simply marvelous. It's so nice to see everybody. Oh my gosh. It's so good to see We should do this more often, for sure. For now, it's way past my bedtime. It's 10 o'clock at night. Lila Tove, ladies. Hello. Hello. Bye. Bye. I'm going to be the last one on again, like yesterday. Oh, Sylvie, that's the plan. You're like waiting for everyone to leave you. Hi, Sarah. At class ended and everyone turned their cameras back. My phone died yesterday. I didn't mean to say not goodbye. Your dog? Oh, no. I was going to Jenna, yeah? how'd your mom oh, find yeah, the dog? I was on the phone the whole time, but she kept making comments. She came and joined me, and she started talking to me. <laughs> Guys, how fun was it when we heard Rabbi Kaufman's baby? Yes! I was wondering whose baby that was. I checked to see who had their microphone off. I was like, it must be his baby. Someone should have had to touch the hand. You'd be like, would you mind turning the camera to your child? Um, Can I just say, guys, that it was extremely ironic that there was construction going on in my house that whole class? Joking, yeah, there was banging <laughs> and drilling from Hannah. Hashem knew, the whole class. Hashem knew that you could only learn with some noise in the background. So, <laughs> <laughs> do your favor. Whose fault it is that we had banging the whole year? <laughs> Seriously, sorry, guys. Let's blame Hannah on that one. Exactly. <laughs>
when Brown's over um, here, I have enough food. another three weeks. Uh, yeah. Have enough food? Oh, yeah, like I'll let us go to the shop. It's like April. It's like April now. Wow. Wait, who's on lockdown? I've been in quarantine for maybe two weeks already, and now I'm going to be on oh, the Oh, Shani, I visited you today. Yes. Shani, I don't know what's going on. What's going on? Guys, I went to visit Shani. I don't even know what's going on. That is amazing. It doesn't let me see It's still recording, you guys. Oh, my God, no. I don't know.